lots going on today. Today's a, uh, uh, how much time have I got? Uh, I could maybe, we'll see. I think I can pull this off. Um, but there's, uh, it was a lot of work last night trying to put all this together. And even this morning, something else showed up. Was, oh, I got to change that. And I switched up one thing for another. Oh my goodness. It's never done. Like Lori asked me Saturday night, so you ready for tomorrow? I will be. <laughs> At about, you know, five to 10. <laughs> it's kind of, oh my goodness. All right. Things that made me ponder. I had 10 things. I pared it down because I had way too much uh, somewhere else. But uh, these are connected to Christmas and some of them are really, really good. I, I, I hope it makes sense. My therapist, instead of saying happy holiday, says, may you have a gentle holiday. Her reason, the holidays are not happy for everyone. The hope is that they're gentle for us and that we are gentle on ourselves. I thought, this is really cool because this, this silly notion of happy holidays, Merry Christmas is coming up again in, in religious circles, and I'm so sick of it. So I want to kind of address that, but also the reality of people struggling. And I thought, wow, to say have a gentle holiday, when you know someone's having a hard time, like how do you say happy holidays or Merry Christmas when you know they're going through hell, like Amanda and Michael. But to pray for a gentle holiday, that's, I thought, really, really wise. And I hope I locked that into my, my bank of, of comments. In the Greek, the name Christ is Christos. The first letter looks like the English letter X. The church used the letter Chi, X, to represent Christ in words that began with Christ. So Xmas is an honorable abbreviation for Christmas. It was not intended to take Christ out of Christmas. And if you look at who wrote that, um, the evangelical world respects Warren Wearsby. And even he recognizes this which is really important. So this whole idea of, oh, put Christ back in Christmas. Well, how about put Christ back in the church, for Pete's sake? Like, if you're going to do that. Like, and so the idea of seeing Xmas, it's not short form. It's actually more biblical, more historical, which is kind of cool. I love this from my friend Bill Thrasher. The paradox of Christmas. The cynicism of mass consumerism and materialism pitted against the reflective divine love of excited parents who just want to lavish their kids with unearned gifts simply because they're thrilled to see, experience, and participate in their unrestrained joy. If somebody can be wordy, it's Bill. He's, he's very, he, he expresses with words better than most people I know. But this was cool because it's almost... Yes, you can see the materialism, extremism, but then, wait a minute, the prodigal father. Prodigal means excessive, overdone, ridiculous, irresponsible lavishing. And we do that to our kids, and we've been shamed in the church for that. Forget it. Let's stop doing that. Let's bring the joy back to giving and back into exuberance if you want to. If somebody wants to do it that way, that's fine. If you do it out of obligation, that's a whole different story. But I thought that was really, really good to ponder. And it made me ponder this week. I love this from Robert Capon. This is deep. Get ready. He comes to us in the brokenness of our health, in the shipwreck of our family lives, in the loss of all possible peace of mind, even in the very thick of our sins. 
He saves us in our disasters, not from them. The empathetical, uh, the empathetically does not promise to meet only the odd winner of the self-improvement lottery. He meets us in meets us all in our endless and inescapable losing. This is Christ entering into our darkness. He's not absent from us. How many times do we pray, Lord, deliver me from this. Deliver me from evil. We use the quote from the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus didn't even pray that for Peter. He didn't say, oh, dear God, let Peter not have to go through this really sad, difficult moment of you know, abandonment. He didn't do that. He says, I pray for you, Peter, that once you're through this, you'll be strong and have a resolve to encourage others. So sometimes our prayers are, well, we need to maybe ask, why are we praying the way we are? Or can we pray with a yielding mindset, dear God, whatever this is, thank you that you are in it with me. And then look for the light in that darkness because it's there. I love that. And I love this. This is the last one. This is like a prayer. Blessed creator, today I am not concerned whether anyone is grateful, whether anyone is loving, whether anyone is just. I do not look to the world for any good. I look to you, my source, the fountain of truth, the river of life, the well that never runs dry. May your living water flow through me and let me be grateful. Let me be loving. Let me be just for I have nothing to do but to look to you. And the reason I, this one made me ponder is because we sometimes have an expectation on everyone else. What's going on in our society? Look how bad this world's getting. Look at what the church is doing. Look at our, our relatives or people or neighbors. They're just not being thankful enough. And we have our gripe and we have our hissy fits and we have our, our, our stress-induced, egocentric frustrations hitting us when really your eyes are on the wrong thing all along. Maybe lose those expectations and say, hang on, Jesus is my only source. Not our spouse, not our kids, not our jobs, not our church, not our theology. Jesus is our source. That changes a lot. (laughs) Anyway, I hope those ponderings were encouraging to you. Advent meditation from Henry Now, and I love this. This, just, this is one of the things I had to switch out because I had another one, and then this showed up this morning. Oh, that's good. So, I know that alone I cannot see, hear, or touch God in the world. But God in me, the living Christ in me, can see, hear, and touch God in the world. And all that is Christ's in me It's fully my own. His simplicity, his purity, his innocence are my very own because they are truly given to me to be claimed as my most personal possessions. All that there is of love in me is a gift from Jesus. Yet, every gesture of love I am able to make will be recognized as uniquely mine. That's the paradox of grace. The fullest gift of grace brings with it the fullest gift of freedom. 
There's nothing good in me that does not come from God through Christ, but all the good in me is uniquely my own. The deeper my intimacy with Jesus, the more complete is my freedom. Compassionate Lord, let me, mind, let me be mindful of your gift of grace in my life. That was pretty cool. I love that. All right. Let's share this next video of joy. And I think it's about anticipation and look what you're looking for. And what about your expectations? And suddenly, here we go. Do you remember your first trip to the planetarium? Probably with your third grade class. More excited to leave school than actually learn anything about science. You know who you were. You find your seat, impatiently waiting for the show to start, ignoring the withering look of your teacher. And then, wow, incredible. How can we be so small but so special? That is, I believe, how the wise men must have felt. These magi got quite the star show themselves, except it was just one star, one bright, magnificent, piercing, brilliant ball of fire. And boy, did they bet a lot on that star. But just like the one they were traveling to see, this star stood out as something special. This one beckoned, follow me. And what a payoff. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they asked, where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And it got me thinking, is worship a little different the harder the journey to get there? Struggling along the road with others, the type of trip that tests your faith and breaks your back? What's that worship like? I can't speak for the wise men. Maybe they shouted hallelujah, or they knelt in quiet reverence. We've all walked our own difficult journeys. And when we got to the other side, we all felt it. The joy we had to fight for tasted just a bit sweeter. And for that bright morning star, the one that caught you in awe when you saw it, well, what else can you do but rejoice when you realize that the journey was always leading you to Jesus. I think the journey is Jesus. He is the journey personified in you, as you, with you, in union with you. This idea of the Magi, <laughs> let's take a look at it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Pause there for a moment. Um, two things to look for in this scripture reading I'm going to share. How many were there? And where did they find Jesus? I'll tell you the answers because I'll forget later. There, there's no number for how many wise men there were. They likely traveled in packs out of protection, especially if they're carrying those gifts that they had, those weren't cheap. 
So they, I think they came in clump, like a larger group. And where did they find Jesus? They found Jesus in a house. Even though we have a manger scene over here, it signifies the wise men, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you get bent out of shape because of that, then you're really overthinking it and are forgetting the intent of the nativity. The nativity scene is about all the elements of the story. They weren't all there, although some people are led to believe the wise men showed up the night Jesus was born, which is not true. They found him in a house much later, not in a manger. If you didn't know that, surprise! All right. So these wise men, what about them? And I looked up a commentary on the wise men. I wanted to share this with you because if you didn't know this, it's really, really cool because I want to tie in Daniel to this at the end of today. Wise men or astrologers, known as dream interpreters. Who interpreted dreams years ago? Who did we talk about that interpreted many dreams? It was Joseph for sure, and it was Daniel. Interesting. We'll come back to that. These wealthy priests would have traveled with an entourage for protection as officials from the east. The Greek word magos is taken from the Mede language and means spiritual advisors or simply priests. Well, that makes it interesting. They were appointed by Darius over the state religion as priests of Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and served as official advisors to the king. By the time of Jesus' birth, Persia had been conquered and was being governed by successors to Alexander the Great. It is possible these magi came from the Mesopotamian, I forget how to pronounce that, region in Seclusia. See also Daniel 2 and, uh, and Daniel 5.11, um, where the prophet Daniel is given the title of chief of the Magio. Okay? Don't forget that. It is probable that these Magio were descendants of those who had been taught by Daniel. And because of his prophecy of the Messiah being cut off, they may have been able to decipher the date of his birth along with the interpretation of his star rising. This is a big deal. So how does that fit into joy? Well, them finding Jesus was pretty joyous. It's like, holy smokes, hundreds of years, our group has been studying and reading and paying attention to the stars and signs and, and seasons. And, and you'll see from the one dream that I'm going to share towards the end how these magi were likely connected to Daniel and had a lot of insight that the Jews forgot about or didn't really connect with. There's a there's a history here that is more powerful than we realize. And I'll, I'll tell you the secret right away. Love wins. Jesus wins. You'll see why when I get done. But let's get into the story. So they come, where, is it, where did they come from? Uh, I think it was in, here we go. Uh, okay, it came to Jerusalem. That's right. So there they are in Jerusalem. And why would they go to Jerusalem? Maybe they didn't know enough of the history of um, the Hebrew writings Maybe they didn't catch the prophecy of Bethlehem. Somebody else did. Watch. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Why would they go to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was the place where the leaders are. Like, if you're going to have royalty show up, where, do you, where does royalty come? They don't come to the little hick town. They go right to the big city with all the dignitaries and so on. That's what typically happens. So they just assumed somebody would know, and that's why they went looking. If they did know the history of Bethlehem, they kind of thought, well, I guess when they arrived, they went, well, let's, let's check out 
capital. The the Hebrew scriptures, the temple, let's go there. They should know, shouldn't they? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Let me back up. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's why Herod was troubled. That's the only reason Herod was troubled. He was jockeying for position. He killed so many people that would possibly take away his throne. Uh, there, there's some brutal stories. I won't get into them because that's not the point of today. But he was troubled because somebody shows up saying, where's king of the Jews? And he's saying, I'm your king. What do you mean, king of the Jews? Oh, do tell me. He's a slithering snake. And so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him. That blew me away. They told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Wow. They knew. Why weren't they looking? Why weren't they in Jerusalem? I mean, in Bethlehem. Why? Huh. Interesting. Sometimes power trumps the idea of truth. They don't want anybody taking over and shaking things up. They got their, they're jockeying for their own political positions. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared because it wasn't that day. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. (laughs) After listening to the king, they went on their way. And as we know from the story, he went to kill Jesus. And we know this because after Jesus fled with Mary and Joseph to Egypt, they killed all the two-year-olds. Okay, this is a huge historical event. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and fruitcake. No, I'm kidding. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Dreams. A number of dreams or appearances in a dream. Sometimes people think they saw an angel or an apparition or something. Sometimes it happened in a dream. Who knows? We can't qualify all that, but this is how it's recorded. And they did not go back to Herod. Now, why wouldn't Herod do this himself? And proud, lazy and proud. So let somebody else do the dirty work, go find the kid, and then I'll kill him. Because he assumed that these wise men would obey him, right? He may have even promised gifts. Who knows? That's... You bribe to get them to come back and then let somebody else do the dirty work. And then he found out he was duped. This, the idea of the three wise men comes from three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
not three actual people. There was an assumption there was only three, but three guys walking around with that kind of stuff on their camels, I don't think so. <laughs> it doesn't make rational sense in that culture where there are bandits everywhere to plunder people and steal. Like, didn't happen. Which then brings us to this. Daniel chapter 2. I, th- I think I alluded to this a while back, but wanna, I want to share the story with you because this story from Daniel, I think, is why the wise men came. There's, a, I believe it's a direct connection, and hopefully you'll see it. Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. And he called his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And twice they told the king they cannot. Tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means, but we can't tell you a dream. And he said, what good are you guys? And then he said, I'm gonna, you're done. I'm going to kill you all, all you wise men, just because he was so irrational. Well, Daniel hears about this. And he asks for an extension. I think he gets 24 hours or to the next morning. And so he meets up with his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and says, hey, guys, we got to pray. we got to pray, like, now, because our lives depend on it. Let's pray that God will give us this dream and what it means. Maybe one of us will get it. And that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel is then brought to the king by the guard who was going to kill him. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And Daniel replied, and I love the humility in this, and I had to cut out a whole bunch of verses because there was way too many slides to read the whole thing. But there's a humility here where he is directing all credit to God. Well, most people today in pastor or or, um, a prophetic Lenses, they want to be known as the prophet or the healer and get that credit for all the, all the stuff that's happening and, you know, makes them feel good and grow their ministries. And Daniel was not into that. And he says, Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. So here he takes time, and he tells the story of this vision. So this is just a photo of it. Um, I think it's uh, an original, but anyway. um, (laughs) As if... (laughs) So here's, I'm going to pause here so I don't forget to share this. He talks about the statue that's made out of all these items. Isn't it interesting that a couple chapters later, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Anybody remember? He erects a statue of himself and makes everybody worship him. That's where another story comes where they're supposed to worship the statue. Do you remember them being thrown in the furnace? That's the statue they wouldn't bow down to. So here from a dream, he then, again, after I get through all this, and whatever Nebuchadnezzar says, he then switches and builds something selfishly, and this is how fickle we are in our humanity. And we shouldn't be surprised. 
But that's what power can do too. So here it goes. And this is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. Referring, referring back to God. He's, he's giving God credit here. This is not mine. This is pretty bold. Well, it's either tell or die, right? <laughs> but anyway, he, pretty bold. But I think he does it from the way this is written um, with some sincerity. Here he goes. In your vision, your majesty, you, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not with, by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But... The rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. <laughs> okay, this is big. This is the image. The rock coming, not cut from human hands. I believe that's Christ. The symbolism of Christ coming. And you'll see why in a few moments. But there's the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then clay. That was the dream. Now, we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you're the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. And I wonder if that was the fuel for the statue to come. Feeding the pride. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided like iron mixed with clay. It will have some of the strength of iron, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of those kings, 
the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. Let me read this again. During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. That's pretty certain. (laughs) Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. I guess he didn't kill him, huh? (laughs) He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all of his wise men. Okay? The, the beginning, where the wise men, I believe, came from. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. Wow. So, what do these kingdoms mean? And if you haven't seen this before, it's, I'm going to do it really quick. I will say this. Almost every scholar, every biblical scholar will agree with everything until we get to the iron and clay. Almost every single Christian theologian will agree. Yes, those are obvious. But this one's in debate, and yet it shouldn't be in debate. For it makes sense when we see what's going on. So the gold head represents the empire of Babylon, of which Nebuchadnezzar is the king. The silver chest and arms, the silver uh, chest and two arms signified the empire of the Medes and Persians, which conquered the supplanted Babylon. Then the bronze belly and thighs represents the Greco-Macedonian empire of Alexander the Great, which swallowed up Persia. And the iron legs uh, represents the Roman Empire after Alexander's death. This empire continued divided until its divisions were taken over by Rome, and the two legs apparently signify the east and west divisions that characterized the late Roman Empire. The feet, this is where it gets good. Extending from the legs and the toes of iron mixed together, the brittle, unstable mixture, because it would not bond well. These represent the final phase of the Roman Empire, which would be made up of ten kings, some strong, some weak. If you know your history, and if you don't know your history, Rome was divided into how many provinces by the time Jesus arrived? Take a guess. Ten. Were they divided? You better believe it. A lot of in-house fighting, a lot of merging religion, trying to figure out and appease and so on. It was a mess. So these wise men are watching history play out. All the way from Daniel's time, that sect of wise men had been training and studying and watching the science for hundreds of years. I think these wise men were the most joyful ever. It's like, finally! I get to see this? You mean all these prophecies? I or we get to actually see this now? The dream was not about end times as in the end of the world, which is what other 
scholars have made it out to be. That this is about speaking of the end of the world, well, the whole world will be destroyed, and on and on and on. But wait a minute, I think it's got nothing to do with that. It totally does not fit the narrative. Because the stone came at the time of the divided kingdoms. So I think the wise men were watching what's going on with the different uh, empires that were coming. Clearly, they were the Roman Empire, and they knew the ten provinces were going on, so they're probably really on alert. Guys, it's close. And suddenly, boom! No way! You see what I see? Yeah. Get it? Do you see what I see? Just kidding. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> the star! That can't be the one we've been... Yes! No way! Yeah! Way! And then suddenly the journey begins, and they pack up, and they're getting ready to go, and it takes maybe a year and a half to get to where they're going. Who knows? But since Herod killed everybody under two, however long that took, it took a long time. To me, this is, this makes more sense that the rock Jesus would come and arrive and fill the whole earth with a kingdom that will Never end. So why are we bickering in the church saying, oh no, Jesus, when is this kingdom going to come? Wait a minute. It has come. And where does it live? In you and in me. The kingdom has come. We're not to look for a kingdom. We're to see the kingdom of Christ in us. Stop looking everywhere else. Quit, wish, quit wishing for what is a fantasy and not true. Believe what is true, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The dream is about the coming kingdom, the coming of Jesus. At just the right time, at the time of the division, the rock comes and the kingdom of Christ takes over all of those kingdoms. The greatest kingdoms on earth and the kingdom of Jesus is bigger and better. I forgot about the dust blowing away or the wind blowing away, the dust of all that. I was like, I forgot about that part. I thought most people forget about the rock coming in and the part of the rock mountain growing. That's the part most of us forget about. But can you see the connection to Jesus and the birth and the arrival of the coming king? I can. And now the magi makes sense. It took me a long time to see that. I can't unsee it now. Every other concept doesn't make sense. I've only heard a few other ones that, mm, it's possible. But this one I'm excited about. Oh, the joy the Magi must have been feeling as they got closer and finally met the Savior. How close when they got to Jerusalem, met Herod. Oh, Herod's all for him. This is great. Woo, supportive leader. All right, we're going to, and they go and they find Jesus and they're all excited. And, and then they get a wake-up call. A dream that was strong enough or powerful enough, intuitively enough to convince them to not go back. Oh, by the way, that means these wise men were already in tune with the idea of dreams. They were already accepting of the possibility that, hmm, maybe God works or the power of the universe works through dreams, however they worded. They didn't, I don't know. Who knows if they believed in God the same way the Jews did? Who knows? But they were watching. They knew this was important. And yet I have a hunch they did believe because that's the root of Daniel, as he would have taught and mentored. <laughs> and the kingdom is still covering the whole earth. It's not done. It's not done. 
but to say when is the kingdom coming? When is Jesus coming? Is there a physical return? Maybe. I'm still researching that. I, I, it's, it's moved from an absolute yes to a, I have more to learn about this instead of being absolute. Because when you're absolute, there's no room for extra info. I think there's more to learn. What can it look like? I'm more interested in seeing what it would look like because I think there's much more coming. I think we're going to experience something different and more beautiful than almost the fearful, naysayers, negative messaging we've received from the church world regarding end times. And I've taught on end times before and I, I will continue to. I think there's more hope. I think we need a more hope-filled perspective for sure. It's here. It's not done. So we can be joyful. Imagine the joy they must have felt. <laughs> I want to go first. No, me first, me first. <laughs> Two, you can't fit that through that door, guys. So they, they finally get in there and they see Jesus. And we get the benefit of Christ living in us. Something they didn't have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us take our eyes off of all of our complainings all the things that tick us off or catch us with short patience. When we complain about others, help me, Father, to take my eyes off them and refocus on you as you are my source. It's not easy. I fail at this a lot. So this week, give me more success. I may give you credit. Not broadcast it to anybody, but just inside me, I can say, that was you, thank you. May I focus on you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.